U.S. airstrikes have targeted poppy fields in Afghanistan's booming heroin trade. Opium production has played a crucial role in the country's rural economy and the Taliban's insurgency for decades. This is what the allies in Afghanistan are up against. The two boxes the men are carrying have 24 kilos of dry opium inside. From here, the drug is smuggled into Pakistan and onto Europe. Nearly a ton of heroin worth millions of euro has been seized from a warehouse at a port near the Greek capital Athens. It's believed a street gang from the Turkish city of Istanbul is behind the trafficking. So here in trade is booming in South Africa. It says gangs and organized crime are driving the trade. Deep in the Helmand province of Afghanistan, there are carpets of pink and white poppy fields worked tirelessly by local farmers. Each of those pink and white flowers has a swollen head. That evening, a number of farmers score each head with a knife before leaving the flower to do its thing overnight. The next morning, the same farmers, armed with a sickle, gently scrape the gum that's oozing from the poppy head, gathering it together, a slow and painstaking task. This plant is an opium poppy flower and the gum is the base ingredient for heroin and it's at the start of a journey that crosses multiple borders and involves criminal networks across the world, before finally ending up being injected, smoked or snorted into the body of a heroin user. This is a story we see repeated across the globe in Myanmar, Mexico, Colombia, Guatemala, but Afghanistan is where most of it begins. You're listening to The Impact, Coronavirus and Organised Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. For 12 weeks, this special edition weekly podcast is looking at how the ongoing coronavirus is impacting on organised crime around the world and how the illicit economy may affect our ability to respond to the virus. For over three decades, Afghanistan has been the most dominant and largest producer of opium poppy and the production of heroin. It's believed that Afghanistan supplies 90% of the opium and heroin globally, but the distribution is highly uneven around the world. Myanmar, Mexico, Guatemala and even Colombia have all seen a resurgence in opium poppy cultivation. From Afghanistan, heroin travels north and south. The northern route takes the heroin through Central Asia and into Russia. The southern route takes the heroin into Pakistan and from there, like a spider, it spreads in all directions. From Pakistan it goes east into India and China and beyond. It can go through Pakistan to the Arabian Sea and from there it can head either west into the Arabian Peninsula and through southern Europe or it heads further south into East Africa, some staying on the continent, the rest heading north to Europe and some even goes west to the United States. The route we're going to concentrate on first is known as the Balkan route, Afghanistan to Pakistan through Iran and Turkey before entering the continent through the Balkans. Let's start where it all begins, Afghanistan. If the country is estimated to produce the vast majority of heroin, just how big is the illicit economy and how important is it to the wider economy of the country? Vanda Felber Brown is an author and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and also a member of the GI network. The opium poppy economy is of enormous economic and political significance in Afghanistan. 
and its political significance, it's inevitably a function of the role it plays in people's daily livelihoods and the amount of people that it employs and the amount of GDP revenue that it generates. So the United Nations' latest estimates are that the percentage of opium poppy production and heroin production, so the entirety of the drug chain in Afghanistan, uh, not when heroin leaves Afghan borders, amounts to about 11% of Afghan GDP. It also employs a far greater number of people than any other aspect of Afghanistan's legal economy, other than being a member of security forces or, on the other hand, fighting for insurgents. Moreover, this number of 11% counts simply the opium, poppy opium heroin chain. It really does not take into account the value added that comes from opium poppy cultivation and heroin production. The fact that families uh, will need opium as currency to access land, to access microcredit, that they will use earnings from opium poppy to pay for schooling of their children or for medical care in Afghanistan, Pakistan, or elsewhere, that they will use earnings from opium poppy to buy uh, both perishable goods as well as non-perishable investments, such as perhaps a generator. So the role of the poppy economy in Afghanistan is really massive. Afghanistan neighbours a number of countries that have been significantly hit by COVID, such as China and Iran. But Afghanistan, as a recording in mid-May, has 7,653 confirmed cases. Has COVID had an impact on production at all? COVID is a global disaster. The zoogenic disease pandemic is really destroying economies and livelihoods around the world. And Afghanistan, unfortunately, is in one of the worst positions to be able to bear with COVID. And since uh, people really struggle to put up with lockdowns because many people need to earn income daily to be able to buy food on a daily basis, they have no refrigeration, no electricity, and not enough financial reserves to be able to stock up on food for even a week. Uh, the spread of COVID is, of course, massive. And layer on top of that, the debilitating war that's uh, really just intensifying in the amount of violence. And you have almost impossible situation for an effective response to COVID. So there is a very substantial fear that COVID will significantly increase food insecurity in Afghanistan. It's already happening. The only question is how long it will last. And one of the likely outcomes apart from much greater death tolls that we are going to see is likely to be that some people might be trying to move to their rural homes. To, so many people in Afghanistan will have some relatives in cities and perhaps live in cities, but still have significant rural roots. And as economy in the cities might be crashing and food might not be available, we might see a reverse migration from cities to urban areas. We are seeing that in other parts of the world, places like Peru, for example. And what will that mean, of course, is that there is potentially much more labor available for the cultivation of opium poppy. Now, that does not mean that sky is the limit for uh, how much uh, poppy is cultivated and how much opium and heroin produced. Ultimately, uh, although production has been very high and much higher uh, over the past 10 years than, say, in the 1990s, it's limited by the global market. And we know now that farmers do store 
as much as 20-30% of their yearly production that they do not sell it immediately for a variety of reasons. But nonetheless, just because one has more labor does not mean that there is enough market to bear more, more production. And the profit made from this illicit trade, as you said, through taxation by groups like the Taliban, does this give them more freedom of action, so essentially gives them a greater ability to actually continue to fight militarily? Absolutely. I talk in my book, Shooting Up, about the various gains that insurgent groups gain from tapping into illicit economies. Those are not just the financial gains that people often focus on, but the financial gains have a whole variety of other effects on the military battlefield, including enabling groups to launch and develop much more sophisticated military tactics and build up military strategies akin to regular armies. So the access to the drug trade has really allowed the Taliban to become a very sophisticated, highly capable insurgency. And I would just posit that it's one of the most successful insurgencies ever, including having withstood 20 years of U.S. counterattacks, and it is still the power in Afghanistan with the momentum on the battlefield and with immense military potency and capacity. Despite having suffered 20 years of U.S. and NATO full-blown response, much losses of leadership, but the opium puppy gives the Taliban significant resources that allow it to become a a sophisticated military entity. Do you think COVID has had an impact on the ability to smuggle drugs from Afghanistan outwards? Well, one of the interesting things that we have seen about drug markets in the past three months of COVID is that they have proven more resilient than many had hoped. But that does not mean that the resilience is uniform and is equivalent. So if you take a place like Afghanistan, which has enormously porous borders with just about every neighbor, it's very hard to see how anything could prevent smuggling through places like Pakistan, Central Asia, or Iran. Now, COVID has scared neighboring countries of Afghanistan to a level that was not there before COVID. So uh, there is far greater motivation of law enforcement officials in the neighboring countries to patrol the border. Iran has been the, the neighbor that's been most diligent and determined to counter drug trade from Afghanistan and has lost many of its police and border officials to that effort in the thousands, but even so has not been able to stop historically the trade flowing through Iran and then feeding addiction in Iran and elsewhere in the Middle East. Pakistan has also shut down some of the most significant legal ports of entry, like the Torkham Gate. But other parts of the border are very complex. It's a highly mountainous border with centuries of trading and smuggling routes through them, decades of terrorist groups going across the border, evading officials of both Afghanistan and Pakistan side. And I have very little expectation that that border has significantly reduced smuggling out. The United States and the Taliban have signed an agreement focusing on US withdrawal from the country over the next year. There was no mention of a reduction in opium poppy cultivation in that agreement. Once the US does withdraw, what do you expect to happen? Now, there is a very high chance that the Taliban will come to power. It's, in fact, almost inevitable that the Taliban will come to power. The question is how much civil war and how much bloodshed and how many years of civil war have taken place beforehand. 
and whether the Taliban will be part of the national power-sharing government with other political forces, those represented in the current Afghan government and Afghan politician, or whether it will be in government through essentially in an exclusionary role, perhaps allowing only very few power brokers. But there are rumors that some members of the Taliban leadership are again trying to suggest that if the Taliban, when the Taliban comes to power, they will push for a poppy ban. My own conversations with Taliban members and interlocutors has suggested that at least an element of the leadership is thinking along those lines. How credible, how realistic those claims are is yet to be seen. But if the Taliban comes to power and decides to go aggressively after popping, whether through bans or actual eradication, it will repeat the governance disaster that it produced in early 95. So why would the Taliban do it? Essentially, again, to, to bargain for international recognition and to sustain economic aid flows. In fact, the Taliban is desperate that the United States, as it withdraws from Afghanistan, does not cut off economic aid to Afghanistan and to Afghanistan run or co-run by the Taliban. But I don't think it's impossible that if, when it comes to power, it might try some sort of ban and eradication. So we could see surprising policy experimentation in Afghanistan in the future, but uh, I am sadly confident that that policy experimentation will not produce any kind of sustained reduction in opium poppy cultivation. For that to happen, we would have to look at a few decades, two, three decades of peace in the country and some minimally sound economic policies that would allow for real livelihoods to take off. That was van der Felber Brown an author and senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and also a member of the GI Network. From Afghanistan, the heroin travels the southern route into Pakistan, crossing at a number of points along the 7,300-kilometre porous border, and from here it crosses into Iran along the 900-plus-kilometre border, or heads south to ports like Karachi, where it then travels across the sea to the Arabian Peninsula or East Africa and beyond. These are well-travelled, ancient trading routes and have been in operation for centuries. Pakistan is in the perfect position to be a transit country for the heroin smuggling illicit economy. So given Pakistan's geo-strategic location on the transit route of heroin, how important is it to have a collaborative approach between the regional nations? Tariq Kosha is a retired former Director General of the Federal Police of Pakistan and former Federal Secretary of the Narcotics Control Division. He's now the Director of the National Initiative Against Organised Crime in Pakistan and recipient of the Global Initiatives Resilience Fund. It's absolutely crucial, I think, where uh, Pakistan being a federation and not a unitary set of government like in UK we are a federation where provinces or states are pretty strong and are autonomous. So the federal anti-narcotics force is now heading an interagency task force where the federal and provincial law enforcement agencies are now collaborating at the national level for uh, interprovincial or national level or local level, you know, operations against the drug dealers. At the same time, through this collaborative international regional approach, whereas the peace uh, moves uh, are uh, very much undergoing in Afghanistan, we see 
a more collaborative policy or an approach being adopted by law enforcement agencies of uh, all the three countries. And now another major player who, who has entered lately is China, because the late trend that we had noticed was that Afghan trade coming into Pakistan and from Pakistan were being transported to China. So Chinese uh, got uh, concerned and have got into a quadrilateral collaborative arrangement between China, Pakistan, Afghanistan and Iran, where uh, these countries are working. Russia is another player because uh, through Tajikistan, Afghan drugs were getting into uh, Russian Federation also. And five uh, countries of Central Asian states have got together on an economic agenda of collaboration. But law enforcement and organized crime is also their priority. As we heard earlier in the show, two of Pakistan's close neighbors, China and Iran, were particularly badly hit by COVID. Has COVID had an impact on how collaborative countries can be tackling organized crime? Jack, this is an important question that you have raised at a time where COVID outbreak in the region is is causing a big concern. Pakistan has crossed about 38,000 infected cases. We have more than 800 people who have died in this. Although you're right, China and Iran in the region have more casualties, but India and Pakistan in this region also, there is a spike in cases. So COVID-19 and its impact on generally, while the law enforcement agencies are fully now geared and involved in preventing, in proactivities in the context of COVID-19, it is the organized criminal networks who, are, who may take advantage of that. And we see some initial signs having studied this phenomena in the last two months. We see spike in uh, crimes like terror financing and other things. But we see cybercrime activity picking up. Drug-related activities, maybe the borders were closed. There were intercity transport. There was restrictions. So we don't see much of Afghan drugs trickling into Pakistan. But the drug cartels here had their storages and other. And we have noticed recently that some of the containers which were uh, due to Istanbul and some of the European countries at Karachi port have been successfully intercepted. And uh, so uh, this recent activity also reveals that some of the big hauls have been made on the launches by Maritime Security Agency of Pakistan recently, where the drugs were being transported illegally from Karachi to UAE, Dubai and these places. But these organized criminal groups always keep on changing their modus operandi And therefore, we have to be very cautious and law enforcement has to be more proactive rather than reactive. The world is in a strange place right now with COVID and all aspects of society have been impacted in some shape or form. Have we been able to see what impact COVID has had on the heroin trade? It remains to be monitored very closely. While there was a strict closure of borders and there is a free exchange at the borders of Balochistan and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, two regular immigration posts where hundreds or thousands of people cross over into Pakistan or go from Pakistan into Afghanistan for local trade and economic activity. But we cannot uh, monitor each and every individual. But these networks take advantage of such frequent economic or trade and other interaction between the two countries. And therefore, we see that while uh, poppy cultivation is still there, And so drug dealing 
still needs to be controlled in the border region. So I see that this is a challenge. And in COVID-19, where all your attention are towards health maintenance and health facilities and their announcement, we see that these drug dealers and other organized criminal actors are taking advantage of the situation of the state stakeholders being, you know, attention there being diverted. That was Tariq Kosher, the director of the National Initiative Against Organized Crime in Pakistan and the recipient of the Global Initiatives Resilience Fund. You can read the NIOC Corona Crime Watch newsletter by going to their website, which is www.nioc.pk. From Pakistan, let's jump onto the Balkan route, which first travels from Pakistan into Iran and then on into Turkey. Again, there's a real importance to the geographic position of Turkey. To the east, Turkey has a direct border with Iran, and to the west, Turkey straddles the Bosphorus Strait and has a direct border with the European Union. As a consequence, it plays a central role on the Balkan trafficking route towards Western Europe. But it's not the only reason. Organised criminal groups in Turkey have connections with the diaspora of Turkish populations within Europe, particularly in Germany and the Netherlands, who, along with other organised criminal groups, help to facilitate the trafficking of heroin. So how extensive is the illicit drugs trade in Turkey? Ben Crabtree is an illicit trafficking analyst who has worked with the UNODC. For transshipment, for transport, it's large, to say the least. Uh, if we just take a look at the uh, amount being seized in Turkey just by itself on an annual basis, Turkey almost always seizes the most amount of heroin outside of Afghanistan globally every year by a factor of five in comparison to the entirety of Western Europe. So it clearly shows that a lot of the illicit trade for heroin is being funneled through Turkey. What's been most interesting most recently is rather than pre-COVID-19 has been the kick up in the size of individual drug seizures, both within Turkey and within the Balkans in general. You see one 1.5 ton really huge seizures of, of heroin being made both by the Turks and in the, in, in the Balkans, including a large seizure in Azerbaijan last November, if I remember correctly. So they play a key role, definitely. There was obviously historically, I'm sure you've heard of the French connection, heroin being exported from uh, Turkey into the French ports of Marseille. So there's a long, long tradition of, of smuggling of, of heroin through Turkey to destination markets. What kind of impact has COVID had on the trafficking of heroin through Turkey? It's like any other legal market in a sense that there is a demand there for it. If the demand is always there, then it's really more for organized crime groups and DTOs a question of how we best organize supply and how that impacts reaching our potential clients and customers. The economic needs, obviously, of organized crime groups, they can't just stop overnight. They need to be generating cash flows in order to maintain their operations. Otherwise, they go into, into deficits. So, so there's, a, there's a financial need despite COVID or other externalities such as conflict or economic situations as the decline of a, a currency, for example, there's always going to be that need there. The question is, obviously, is, is how much of the impact is there. So I would probably say that probably COVID is having some impact on how shipments are being organized, how much we want to move at any given period, and that uh, traffickers may be wanting to wait out until the worst of it is over and then get back in when the when the financial requirements are really there. And with your knowledge of the region and the trade, looking to the future post-COVID, how important is collaboration between states? 
I think the points about cooperation is, is really central. Again, COVID makes it more challenging face to face, but there are a lot of obstacles, obviously, to effective cooperation, uh, not just within the region, but also globally. Counter narcotics, despite the argument that all this money is spent on law enforcement, the actual size and relevance of counter narcotics varies massively from country to country. But the destination markets such as UK, US, Germany, France to a lesser extent, obviously there's considerable dedication and the ability to dedicate resources to combating narcotics, particularly at a, a transnational, even a, even a global reach. Whereas if we're talking about, a, say, a smaller country with a, a rather limited capacity, say, I don't know, Bulgaria, for example, where your border guards are paid 200 US dollars a month or something like that, what incentive do I really have to be really giving my all to this thing, especially as it's not affecting my country? These drugs are passing through, so it's not it's not staying with my people. It sounds kind of selfish, but it, it's actually just practical. And then obviously there's the question of corruption on top. You have to realize that in many cases you're dealing with people that are corrupt to a certain degree or extent. And that's that's a that's a subject that has to be tackled honestly and, and directly. So it's it's problematic. The one point I try and get across to people more than anything else is that it's really not a great idea to just focus on one country. It's an entire ecosystem. And COVID, obviously, like any external factor, has an impact upon that ecosystem. That was Ben Crabtree, an illicit trafficking analyst. Next, we move away from the Balkan route and back onto the southern route. From Pakistan, we head to a part of the world that isn't necessarily well known internationally for drug trafficking, and that's East and Southern Africa. You may not realize, but it's very important to heroin trafficking. During the 1950s, the heroin trade was based out of West Africa, but after large seizures of shipments, organized criminal networks began to use East Africa instead. By the 90s, those organized criminal groups were replaced by new locally run criminal networks. And domestic markets have sprung up around the region. In Tanzania, the average use in urban areas is between 6 and 20 pinch-sized doses. In Mozambique, it's between 2 and 5. In South Africa, it's between 4 and 6. Heroin appears to have become a significant shadow economy across large swathes of the region. So we're leaving the shores of South Asia and we're heading to East Africa. Jason Eli is a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime and the author of the comprehensive and fantastic report, A Shallow Flood, The Diffusion of Heroin in Eastern and Southern Africa. The heroin is then shipped through ports, not necessarily formal ports, but maritime ports in Southern Asia by Dow. It transits the Indian Ocean and arrives, in many cases, on the shores of Eastern Africa. Originally, the arrival points were closer to, to Kenya and northern Tanzania, but as we've moved through the last 30 years or so, these have continued to move further south down towards northern Mozambique and potentially points a bit further south. The heroin arrives by Dao a sailing vessel with a distinctive triangular sail, a traditional trading vessel for this part of the world, where they have been used for centuries. Generally, when a load arrives by Dow, we're talking about a load that is in the size of a ton or more, which is quite a high volume. The Dow tends to anchor offshore, and the heroin is shipped in smaller amounts by small boat 
from the anchored vessel to a point onshore where it is then put into storage. Generally, the heroin that comes into African points is seen as heroin that is moving on its way to markets in, in Europe and to a lesser degree markets across the continent, but largely in, in the east and the south. How much of this heroin remains on the continent for consumption and how much of it is moved forward, we we don't really know, and I don't think anybody really understands. It is a point of continuing research, but we do know that some growing portion of the heroin that arrives on the shore remains on the shore. Once the heroin has been unloaded, what happens next? So the load that arrives is divided up into smaller portions still, perhaps portions of kilo bricks or a little bit more, and it's generally moved overland from its point, let's say, in Tanzania to points further inland. And it travels generally by public transport, buses, commercial vehicles, private cars, and it's moved generally in a direction that moves from its point of origin towards the south-southwest of the continent. So it's moving from the eastern seaboard down towards South Africa generally. And what about the heroin that's being moved on overseas? The amount of heroin that moves overseas will generally move through at least one additional point of departure. That may be a point by air, that may be a point by sea, but it'll move overland from the coast inland. One common point of departure is the two airports around the long way and Blantyre, which are vulnerable to the trafficking of both heroin and to a lesser degree cocaine from the south of the continent to points further north, in particular uh, Ethiopia, but also further up to Nairobi. When we talk about heroin moving from the continent to a destination like Europe, we're not talking about a direct movement. So it's not a straight line from South Asia to a point in Africa, and then a straight line on again from that point to Europe. It can often transit two, three, or four uh, additional transit points, and these could be on the continent, or they could be elsewhere. And those organized criminal groups that are moving product further along the chain to Europe are always trying to find points of entry with the least resistance. The way that the heroin moves is influenced to a great degree by the way that trafficking routes are perceived by authorities in, in Europe. So if a route has been designated as a route that is both vulnerable to the trafficking of heroin into the EU, and it's seen to have some volume coming on it, then it'll be more highly scrutinized than another route. And the origin point of that, of that vulnerable route will then be seen as a point of departure for heroin into the EU market and will be scrutinized further still. Therefore, the, the organizations that are responsible for moving the drugs are always trying to, to find different opportunities are always trying to find a way of getting around the scrutiny of, of European authorities, of finding a way of reducing the vulnerability of their shipment to seizure. So you're seeing points of departure in Southern Africa being moved further and further inland, away from where the heroin lands on the eastern coast, and also away from points where heroin, where domestic heroin markets are, 
quite uh, well known, like in South Africa, because it decreases the vulnerability of the shipment being captured. So does the lack of economic opportunities to large numbers of the population make this a threat to the development of state institutions and security? I do think that there is a a greater risk now than there was before COVID-19. We've seen some governments employ their security forces, police, uh, in some cases military, under the guise of maintaining security, maintaining isolation, maintaining quarantine. And these are countries where a large portion of the population gets by on day-to-day subsistence work. And these are individuals who are unable to stay at home, many of whom perhaps don't even have a home in which they can be isolated. They need to be out on the streets. They need to be hustling to make money. They need to be going to the markets to sell whatever goods they have to sell to earn money so that their families can eat. I think you're seeing perhaps some portion of the population taking a a fatalistic view where maybe COVID-19, if I get it, will kill me in a matter of weeks and months. But if I don't eat, I might die tomorrow or or the day after. I think there's a balance that that needs to be struck here. The challenge is as lockdowns continue and as the threat of COVID continues, there becomes a point where the economic vulnerability of the state is such that it either has to open up enormously, and if it does so, how does it address that? And the question around the use by some countries of their law enforcement assets and military assets to maintain security even after the lockdown is finished and the recovery period begins is something that that we have to consider. So it's going to be quite a challenge for several countries, particularly to maintain their overall security going forward through a post-COVID period, a security that obviously as it decreases, as insecurity increases, becomes an attractive feature for criminal organizations like illicit drug trafficking groups. As state employees who are already not paid very well become exasperated in their positions and become vulnerable to being corrupted, to enabling these organizations not only to enter the market, but to consolidate their entry into the market, to become embedded features, and perhaps also to infiltrate governance structures as a whole. So this is a very real threat, and in many ways, a greater threat to these countries than COVID-19 is currently. That was Jason Eli, a senior analyst here at the GI and the author of A Shallow Flood, The Diffusion of Heroin in Eastern and Southern Africa, which will be available on our website very soon. And finally, we move to a specific region within a country in East Africa, northern Mozambique. In late 2017, an armed extremist Islamist group raided and occupied the coastal town of Masimba de Praia, killing 17 people. Since then, the insurgency has raged. This region of Mozambique was a very important landing point for heroin shipments arriving from overseas. So how does the regional instability in northern Mozambique impact drug trafficking routes? Simone Heisem is a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Northern Mozambique became a very important landing point for heroin shipments that were coming overseas. In 2017, an insurgency broke out in in northern Mozambique, particularly in towns on the coast and just inland from the coast, along the stretch of coast that was being used for landing these heroin shipments, as well as a range of other trafficking in a range of other illicit commodities. Was it feared that a relationship would develop between the insurgency and drug trafficking? There's always been a question mark about how the relationship between trafficking and the insurgency would develop. In 
2018, a few months after state violence had begun, the GI looked at that question. And at the time, we said there, there basically wasn't what people were afraid would happen, which was a very close integration between the insurgency and drug trafficking. That didn't exist, and that the insurgents had a relationship to the illicit economy, but it was quite ad hoc. They would only be able to kind of derive profits from, from drug trafficking if they were able to tax the traffickers who were using that region, uh, which would involve them having a certain amount of control or, or leverage. We're now a few years into this insurgency. What about now? In a more recent assessment, we think that that level of infiltration, the possible taxation of figures who are involved in trafficking heroin may be beginning to, to happen and may possibly account in part for why the insurgents seems to be better resourced. It certainly wasn't sort of neutral or sort of development for traffickers on the coast. They had a very cushy relationship with a lot of political protection. Conflict was definitely disruptive to some networks, but others have, have survived the shift in conditions fairly well. That was Simone Heisem, a senior analyst here at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. And you can hear a more comprehensive podcast on the insurgency in northern Mozambique and how it is impacting on the various illicit trades in the country on our Deep Dive podcast, which is available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you can find it on our website, www.globalinitiative.net. Again, you can read Jason Eli's report, A Shallow Flood, The Diffusion of Heroin in Eastern and Southern Africa, on our website soon, and it will be shared across the GI social media channels. And as I said, go and find the new podcast from the Global Initiative, Deep Dive, the first episode, Theft or Destruction, looked at how ISIS stole antiquities from ancient sites in Iraq to sell on the black market and help fund its terror campaign. The next Deep Dive is looking at the insurgency in northern Mozambique and how it's impacting the illicit economy in the region. That's all we've got time for this week. We've spent the last three weeks following illicit drugs around the world during this time of unprecedented disruption due to COVID. It's time to move on to the illegal wildlife trade next week, a place where some have said this coronavirus originated. Remember that you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter about coronavirus and organised crime by heading over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net. The GI are across social media. Just search for The Global Initiative. Rate, review, like and subscribe. This is The Impact, Coronavirus and Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. We'll talk to you soon.